0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York,
2: I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: American bankruptcy proceedings are a legal tussle between a company and its creditors. FTX, a defunct crypto exchange, may owe money to as many as 9 million entities, presaging a long, complex, and potentially
2: painful process. And the winter rains in California can be heavy and welcome after dry summers. But this year's storms have been astonishing and have led to deadly floods. The forces behind them are only set to get worse in the coming years. First up, though, On Saturday, amid a rain of Russian missile strikes across Ukraine, the country's military got a boost, a promise of military hardware from the West unlike any before.
3: The UK Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, said Britain would send tanks to Ukraine along with additional artillery support during a phone call with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky.
2: It's a small number, 14 Challenger 2 tanks, but it's a huge change of stance. President Vladimir Zelensky responded with thanks, tweeting that the move will not only strengthen us on the battlefield, but also send the right signal to other partners. And this morning, another signal of support from European Council President Charles Michel.
4: The time is now. They urgently need more equipment, and I'm personally in favor of supplying tanks to Ukraine.
2: It's long been argued that Western tanks could prove a decisive addition to Ukraine's arsenal. But the idea was off the table. Until now. The conflict in Ukraine has
3: become pretty much frozen after the last two months. We have seen really very little movement along the whole front of uh, a thousand kilometers or so.
2: Chris Lockwood is our Europe editor.
3: The reason that people are talking a lot about tanks at the moment is a new injection of powerful fighting equipment given by the West to Ukraine might enable them to break that stalemate and punch a hole through Russian lines. And this becomes quite urgent because we also believe that the Russians are preparing their own counteroffensive. So this is a very critical time for new equipment to be supplied. And the focus is very much on tanks, something that Ukraine doesn't really have.
2: And how far will Britain's commitment of tanks go to to meeting Ukraine's needs?
3: This is a very interesting development, but for two slightly different reasons. One, it's very useful to get some tanks. It's a Challenger 2s. It's a main battle tank. It's a a powerful beast with a long-range gun and plenty of armor that can do a lot of damage to Russian vehicles and Russian emplacements. But... There's only 14 of them being supplied, one squadron. Ukraine wants tanks, but it wants a lot of tanks. And in fact, when the Economist spoke with the head of Ukraine's army, General Valery Zaluzhnyi, just before Christmas, he laid out what he was after. He said that he would be able to prevail, but he needed 300 tanks and six to 700 of these lesser tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, as they're called, and another 500 howitzers. These are powerful, movable artillery pieces. So it's a small step in that direction. Where this announcement is really important is it's the first time that a Western country has pledged main battle tanks. We've had lesser light tank type vehicles pledged. But until now, no main battle tanks. It's almost been a taboo. And if Britain breaks that taboo, the hope is that other countries, Germany, America, and Poland in particular, will also supply main battle tanks. And if you get those in large numbers, you really do see the possibility of materially altering the situation on the battlefield, because these NATO standard tanks are much better than anything the Russians have got.
2: So what is the distinction here then between infantry fighting vehicles and tanks? Why is there a taboo around one and not the other?
3: Infantry fighting vehicles are just lighter weight than tanks. They tend to have less armor. They're not even necessarily tracked vehicles. Some of the French infantry fighting vehicles have wheels and they tend to have less powerful guns. And they have their uses. They're very important. They're quite mobile. They can knock out tanks if they're close enough and if they hit the tank from the side but they are not nearly as powerful as the best tanks that are around now. Tanks tend to be bigger, heavier, they have much better armor, and they have more powerful, therefore longer range and more deadly guns.
2: But still, though, the the taboo, we're talking about a lot of military hardware that shoot and move around and carry troops. What is it about tanks that makes so many Western powers nervous?
3: Well, personally, I think it's somewhat irrational, the idea that it's all right to supply Bradley fighting vehicles, but not leopard tanks. You know, they're not so very different. And I think this is all about Western powers trying to calibrate what they provide. They are terrified of pushing the Russians too far and triggering escalation. The feeling is if they stick to something that's only called an infantry fighting vehicle and not a tank, it will be seen as a slightly less aggressive move in Russia and maybe there'll be a slightly less danger of escalation. It is seen that way in particular in Germany where they've been extremely resistant to sending their main tank which is called the Leopard but they seem to be okay with sending the Marder which is an infantry fighting vehicle. So they're seeing that I think as a sort of stepping stone. It's perhaps a bit like boiling a frog, you know, you can move step by step by step but if you jump too much in one go, the theory goes, that that might kind of spook Putin too much.
2: But it does seem that Western powers have been slightly increasing the temperature under the frog for quite some time without much retaliation. Yet there's still this fear of escalation proper.
3: Yes, indeed, and I do find it a little contradictory. Right from the start, Putin issued all kinds of dire warnings about what he was going to do. On the very first day of the war back on the 24th of February, he said if Western powers get involved, they will face consequences that they've never experienced before. Ответ России будет незамедлительным и приведёт вас к таким последствиям, с которыми вы в своей истории ещё никогда не сталкивались. And on the same day, he placed his nuclear forces on a heightened state of alert. So it was very clear that he was threatening the possibility of nuclear retaliation if anything was supplied to Ukraine and if the West got involved in any way. Well, we know what happened. Great deal of equipment was supplied, starting with ammunition and lighter guns, moving up to heavier ones. And then we had the HIMARS, which is a fairly long-range missile system. Now we're getting the fighting vehicles. And another great warning was NATO shouldn't expand to Sweden and Finland or there'd be devastating consequences again. Well, that's happening. Sweden and Finland are joining NATO. And again, no retaliation from Russia. I think there's a terrible danger that people get over-spooked by Putin and allow Putin to direct our actions in support of our ally. And we shouldn't let that happen because we've seen so far that these threats are sort of empty threats. And I say, push on.
2: So Britain has promised some tanks once the red line and other countries may follow suit, that that's yet to be seen. But what then becomes the red line beyond it?
3: That's a good question. And first, of course, we'll have to see how many tanks are supplied by other countries. There's a very important pledging conference coming up on Friday, where NATO Defence ministers are going to meet at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany, and we'll see what comes on the table there. It could be a lot more tanks. And also, I think they will address another possible red line, which is the supply of longer-range missiles. Originally, it was felt by the West that that was too much because it gave... Ukraine, the possibility to strike targets deep in Russia. And then the final big red line is the question of advanced aircraft. And of course, one can see that something like an F-16 is something that can very rapidly fly very deeply into Russian territory. And you can see that that could be more risky than anything else. So I suspect it will be quite a while, if ever, before Ukraine gets those.
2: And so why do you think resolving this is is an urgent question?
3: Well, there is a real danger that if this stalemate isn't broken and soon, you run the risk of the existing front line freezing into something almost like a frontier. And I say that because we saw that's what happened in 2014 when Ukraine grabbed Crimea and the eastern half of the two Donbass provinces, Donetsk and Luhansk. And that line of contact froze into something very like a border with checkpoints. And it settled into an almost permanent situation. Peace talks trying to resolve the status of these places went absolutely nowhere. And for eight long years, Russia has sat in control of those bits of Ukrainian territory. And if this line cements or freezes into something like that, but on a bigger scale, it will become very difficult to dislodge Russia, which will steadily dig itself in along that line. So I think the next few months are absolutely critical.
2: Christopher, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
0: Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.
1: Just a few months ago, FTX was one of the world's top exchanges for cryptocurrency. That was until its dramatic collapse in November. Last month... Sam Bankman fried its founder and former CEO, was arrested and charged with fraud.
3: Samuel Bankman fried was arrested in the Bahamas today.
4: Sam Bankman frieds legal team is not commenting on his arrest.
1: It's alleged that he took billions of dollars from the exchange for his own personal use in the days before the company filed for bankruptcy protection. He denies the charges and has published a blog post stating, I didn't steal funds, And I certainly didn't stash billions away. That was last week, when FTX said it had located over $5 billion in cash and liquid assets. It sounds good for the creditors. The company faces bankruptcy proceedings, criminal fraud prosecutions, and more, as detailed in a Congressional House committee hearing.
2: First, I'd like to lay a predicate by going through these charges in the criminal complaint. Wire fraud on customers conspiracy to commit wire fraud on lenders, conspiracy to commit money laundering, and the list goes on with a few others.
1: But thanks to the relative lack of understanding of crypto technology and the scope of this case, those prosecuting will have both huge power over the future of blockchain currencies and a major headache in keeping it all together.
4: So cryptocurrencies are weird. They're property, but not like a house or shares for business, the kind of thing that bankruptcy law has evolved to deal with over centuries.
1: carrie Ann Richmond-Jones writes about finance and economics for The Economist.
4: But in November, the crypto exchange FTX filed for bankruptcy under Chapter 11, a bit of America's legal code which helps bankrupt firms reorganize rather than liquidate. And that means that lawyers now have to work out completely on the fly how law applies to crypto companies.
1: So setting aside crypto companies for a minute, how does Chapter 11 usually work when it comes to a large organization?
4: Right. So the process usually plays out like a legally refereed tussle between a company and its creditors. The bankrupt firm is told by a court what it owes and then tries to convince its lenders to accept a stake in the business rather than cash, which it doesn't have much left of. And eventually, at some point, the two will call it quits. If it's been a successful process, the firm emerges with less borrowing and a shiny new growth plan. If it's unsuccessful, it has to shut up shop. A big restructuring might have 100 creditors. A complex one lasts a year. And even the messiest, which was the Lehman Brothers insolvency after the financial crash, fit its European creditors into a 3,000-seat conference venue in London. But FTX has over a million creditors, sometimes up to 9 million the estimates are getting to. It's the ugliest corporate carcass ever seen. And on top of that, Mr. Bankman-Fried is facing criminal charges for sucking billions of dollars from the exchange for his own use, charges to which he has pled not guilty. So the FTX picture is a complete mess.
1: So whose job is it to sort out this mess?
4: That's complicated as well. The criminal case against Mr. Bankman-Fried is being taken by the courts in New York. But the House Financial Services Committee in D.C. has also been holding hearings. The idea is to kind of legislate against anything similar happening again. And that has led to some truly hilarious scenes. I wonder if you would support a resolution that I've been thinking about introducing, changing the name of cryptocurrency to creepy dole currency. Many politicians have set out their cases. But as we know, crypto can be tricky to get your head around.
0: Now, from the outside, crypto just looks like a non-fungible token. An electronic pet rock for the 21st century.
2: You have a vested interest in creating the assets,
4: promoting the assets, and manipulating the price of the assets. What you have is a crypto casino. I yield back. So what they've done is sought testimony from FTX's new CEO, John Ray III. He was appointed to wind down the business by taking the lead in the bankruptcy proceedings. But due to the magnitude of the mess, he's also become a de facto federal investigator. And none of his tasks are easy.
1: What are those tests? What does John Ray have to do?
4: Right. So first up, Mr. Ray is scrambling to locate assets. This involves constructing corporate accounts from what he calls the worst record keeping he has ever seen.
0: It's one of the worst from a documentation standpoint. Uh, You know, even in the most uh, failed companies, you have a fair roadmap of what happened. We're dealing with literally a a paperless bankruptcy in terms of how they created this company. It makes it very difficult to... uh, to trace and track uh, assets.
4: FTX did not even keep a note of how much customers deposited with them. So far, Mr. Ray's managed to piece together over $5 billion of assets. But we actually don't know the breakdown of these assets, whether they're cash or crypto, or how easily Mr. Ray will be able to sell them for cash. The case is complex, it involves 134 insolvent entities, and they range from FTX Zuma, an exchange that was used in rural Nigeria between villagers, to Good Luck Games, an online card developer that Mr. fried brought on a buying binge in March. It means the proceedings could take a decade, and another big challenge is finding all those creditors. One big appeal of crypto was its facelessness, and so the exchange's customers are often reluctant to fess up their involvement. And investors are far too embarrassed. To coax them out of hiding, the court has agreed to keep FTX's 50 biggest creditors under wraps. It's a highly unusual move. But perhaps the biggest impact of these proceedings is that decisions that will define the future of cryptocurrency will be in the hands of a single judge in Delaware.
1: So why does that one judge have so much control?
4: What's key to understanding this is that despite being around for 15 years, nobody actually agrees on what kind of property cryptocurrency is, in the legal sense. In essence, it is token swaps that are recorded on virtual ledgers by software on a blockchain, which no single person or legal system controls. And that really confuses property law, which assumes that people own things either because the law says they do, or they physically have them in hand. But the law doesn't enforce crypto ledgers, and recording something on a blockchain doesn't conjure a physical coin. This means the law does not know how to treat crypto, and legal decisions that the judge makes now will inform how lawmakers legislate crypto in the future. But there is one thing lawyers and politicians already agree on. And what is that? Crypto tokens are not currency, since money must be backed by government. And that throws up yet another problem. In all likelihood, most of FTX's recoverable value will be in crypto tokens. But when the time comes to carve up the company's assets, the court is going to have to dish out claims in dollars, because bankruptcy courts have always awarded currencies. This raises the question of which day's exchange rate to use, and much worse, the estate holds so many tokens of some cryptocurrencies that auctioning them could spark a market-wide fire sale, burning the token's entire value. Crypto can be so volatile, it's tricky to judge what will crash a market beforehand. Another option would be to sell accounts to a solvent exchange. That would avoid the need to squeeze cash out of tokens that no one really wants anymore. But it would also keep debris from the worst embarrassment in crypto's history floating around the industry for years to come. And it would require a buyer to be found, which might be quite difficult. There is only one certainty from the proceedings to come. FTX will go down as it lived, in breathtaking chaos
1: all right carry on great to have you on the show thanks very much for joining us
4: thank you for having me
1: heavy rain monumental rain in the forecast over the next six days and beyond northern california the target.
2: In California, the deluge has been relentless. Storms and flooding have turned deadly. and On Saturday, President Joe Biden declared a state of emergency. With plenty more freakish flooding on the long-term horizon, it's raising questions about how prepared California is.
5: Well, a couple of days before New Year's Eve, it started raining in California, and it really hasn't stopped.
2: Aaron Braun is The Economist's West Coast correspondent.
5: Initially, I think Californians were super relieved when it started raining because rain is very welcome in a state plagued by drought. But I think that relief has kind of waned a bit two weeks into these storms.
2: And what does it look like after two weeks of storms?
5: Well, there's a lot of flooding happening. I live in Los Angeles and just by my neighborhood, I went to see what the L.A. River looked like. And it's normally like a pretty lame, placid little stream that's encased in concrete. And it was rushing through its channel. We've seen videos from celebrities go viral. Ellen DeGeneres, the talk show host, even posted a video of this massive rushing river behind her house. And it looked like she probably shouldn't have been standing there. This is crazy on the five-year anniversary. We are having unprecedented rain. This creek next to our house never flows, ever probably about nine feet up. And And then it's been in parts of the state really tragic. Trees have toppled on homes and cars and small children have been washed away in floodwaters. And as of the 16th, at least 19 people had been killed. And at one point, 30 million Californians, which is about 75 percent of the population, was under a flood warning.
2: So how out of the norm is this then for for this kind of, of rainfall to happen after a long drought?
5: It is normal for California to get winter rain. Parts of the state have always had problems with flooding. The difference this year is the high number of storms in quick succession. And these storms are known as atmospheric rivers. It's this elongated Corridor or conveyor belt for water vapor in the sky that carries water from one direction to the other. And normally, they hit on the west coasts of continents: North America, Europe, South Africa gets um, and southwestern Australia. And at their mildest, they're kind of just like an average rainy day in Seattle, for example. But at their worst, they kind of can rival the hurricanes that we're used to seeing battering America's east coast. And because we've had so many storms in quick succession, the soils haven't been able to recover. And so they're not able to absorb all this excess moisture, which is why we're seeing all of this flooding.
2: And I have a sneaking suspicion then that that climate change is implicated in some way here.
5: Yeah, that's right, Jason. I think initially it's kind of hard to tell because California is used to getting some storms, but I found it helpful to think about the atmosphere as a sponge. And as temperatures are rising due to climate change, the atmosphere can hold more water vapor. Basically, it's thirstier. So it's sucking up more water from rivers, from reservoirs, from soil. And that's partially why we're seeing the droughts that we've seen, but also why we're seeing this torrential downpour when that sponge decides to wring itself out. And a study published in 2018 suggested that California and probably other Mediterranean climates will experience 25 to 100 percent more of these whiplash events where you go from really dry periods to really wet periods back to back.
2: So California can expect a whole lot more uh, of this kind of stuff in winter.
5: I think this is still an extreme flooding event, but worries are increasing that California could see kind of a version of a mega flood to rival the mega drought that has been ravaging the Southwest. And this is a flood that scientists think would turn the Central Valley, which is the state's big agricultural powerhouse. It supplies the country with a lot of the fruits and vegetables. That would become basically an inland sea and Los Angeles and Orange Counties, where about 13 million people live, would be completely inundated. You hear the term big one when you think about a big earthquake that might hit California, but now people are worried about a different big one, a big flood.
2: So with risks like that in prospect and and also the likelihood that winters like this one will become more common, what is the state to do?
5: I think these storms have been a kind of needed wake-up call, actually. Water nerds hope that officials will see this and feel that now they have the political support to invest in infrastructure like capturing all of the stormwater to then use when we inevitably go back to dry times or to even move levees farther back from the banks of rivers to give rushing waters more room to spread. And that's helpful in two ways because you're gonna reduce the risk of flooding and levee breaks, but also you're gonna let that water seep into natural floodplains, which will then replenish groundwater basins that will also help in dry time. So all these things are connected. You know, unfortunately these storms have proved deadly, but hopefully something good will come out of them.
2: Erin, thanks very much for joining us.
5: Glad to be here. Thanks, Jason.